This episode of Motley Fool Money is brought to you by Molecule, the world's first molecular air purifier that reduces symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. For $75 off your first order, visit Molecule.com, that's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com, and use the promo code FOOL. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best thing in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week, senior analyst Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger. Thanks for being here, guys. Howdy. It is our Labor Day weekend special. We'll revisit a conversation with the one and only Malcolm Gladwell. But guys, on last week's show, we led with the bull market becoming the longest running in U.S. history. So let's take a step back. Let's look ahead to the rest of 2018. We know to expect news from some of the biggest companies out there. Apple's holding an iPhone event in September. Amazon is expected to announce the location of its second headquarters before the end of the year. Jason, I'll start with you. What else is on your radar in the coming months? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be paying attention actually to the election coming up in November, the midterm elections, and the general reaction to the social media space that comes from it. It's been a pretty tumultuous couple of years, I guess, for these guys, and then they've had to sort of revisit strategy and be a little bit more clear about communicating how exactly they're managing those platforms. I feel like that no matter what happens with this election, there's going to be a party very unhappy with how it played out on Facebook and Twitter and whatnot. They're going to make some accusations, perhaps, of shadow banning or partisanship. It's going to be a really interesting time here to see how this all shakes out in November going into the new year. Now, with that said, I don't think it takes away from investing in the space. I don't think social is a fad. I think it's a core human behavior that is is not going away. And the size of these networks that we have with Facebook and Twitter and whatnot, they're going to still be very uh, important networks in, in, in ways that we get our news. But it uh, should be a fascinating time. Yeah, I think the, the nice distinction this year in this election is that Facebook and Twitter know now how much influence they actually have yeah. on these very important events <laughs> in you know in our in our democracy here in the United States and so i think acknowledging that first and then preparing for it is going to make a big difference what about you Manny? what's on your radar well it's it's hit a bit of a snag because of uh, well some accounting issues and because there's just been a lot of volatility in the chinese stock markets but i still expect by year end china is going to unveil what they're calling cdrs which are chinese depository receipts and this is going to enable foreign listed companies like Baidu, Tencent, Sina, Alibaba to actually list their shares in China, which they don't currently do. They're only listed on our exchanges, for example, here in the US. Uh, I think this is important for a lot of reasons. It's kind of flying under the radar a little bit, uh, but it's going to enable these companies to raise capital uh, in their domestic markets, which I think they're going to get a higher valuation from. It's also going to, I think, help endear. These companies to Chinese shareholders and the government, which is which is key in China. So I, it's it's a catalyst I think upcoming that's going to be very important that uh, I'm, I'm paying attention to. So one of the things we talked about on last week's show was with uh, the market hitting sort of that historic mark, the drumbeat is going to only get louder, Jason, in terms of the bears out there saying this is all going to come crashing down. All of which to say between that between the midterms, there's just going to be a lot more noise for investors. Which means it's more likely we're going to miss something. So, what do you think investors are missing right now? Ooh, well, one thing I'm looking at now that I think investors aren't paying a lot of attention to, because it requires very 
ultra long-term thinking. I've been digging a lot into the space industry. You know, I had the good fortune to interview Christian Davenport recently, the author of Space Barons. Uh, for me, this is just a fascinating market that's developing that we're not giving much attention to, and it's for good reason. There's not a lot of public investments out there today. There are not a lot of stocks that we can sink our money into there. But Morgan Stanley data estimates that revenue generated by the global space industry is going to increase to $1.1 trillion or more by 2040. Now, again, I said you got to look way forward, right? That's 20 plus years from now. But it's around $350 billion today. Uh, so for me right now, it's digging into finding some of those opportunities that may potentially uh, bubble up here over the coming decade. Uh, there are a number of different ways to do it with companies out there today, but there's also uh, things out there like the Space Angels, which is a venture uh, focused on uh, early stage space, space investments. And so for me, it's been a really interesting space I'm digging into. I think it's going to present a lot of op opportunities for investors here in the coming decades. Matty, what about you? Uh, this this might come across as flippant. I hope not. But I think what investors are missing is the market. Uh, we hinted at this last week in our discussion, but I, I just think investors don't trust this stock market. And I think investors who have missed it, especially, are just afraid of getting in now because they think as soon as they do, the stock market's going to crash. We're going into a recession. It's going to be awful. But let's go back to the 2008 crash. Um, pretend for a moment you invested, and I've run the numbers, you invested $100,000 in October 2007. Basically, the peak before we had a historic stock market crash. Awful timing, right? I mean, and we actually had a service called Million Dollar Portfolio that actually did this. <laughs> um, here's the thing the investor who put $100,000 into the market on October 2007, how much would they have today? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go on a limb and say more. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a bit more. $500,000. Well, they wouldn't have that much. They'd have 208000 But if that investor had invested 100000 in October 2007, and added 1,000 a month to their just the S&P 500. They'd have 510,000 today. If they invested 5,000 a month, 1.6 million. So just to say, and those are fortunes to a lot of people. I just and that's barely 10 years ago. I would say, do not be afraid of ever investing in well, a stock market. That's along the line of what we always say here: the best time to invest is now. I mean, we don't. We don't claim to be soothsayers here. It's market timing is just a loser's game, but you just got to keep on investing in the good times and the bad and look at it from that longer term perspective. It does work. All right, before we get to a few stocks, let's make a deal. A record $2.5 trillion worth of mergers and acquisitions were announced in just the first half of 2018. So let's see if we can add to that. Jason, <laughs> is there a merger or acquisition you want to see out there? Well, Mr. Matt Greer, this one is just for you. I think Wendy's should buy the Jangler. That's right, Wendy's should buy Bojangles. I think that what we've seen, Bojangles has had a difficult life as a publicly traded company. They have not been able to really take that brand beyond the Southeastern identity that it was born on. I think that this acquisition would give Wendy's credible exposure to the lucrative spicy chicken market. And yes, that chicken market is lucrative, especially when it's spicy. Uh, in all honesty, I think it gives them the ability to keep compete more with restaurant brands and Yum! brands that both own uh, chicken chicken interests there in Popeyes and uh, KFC. They could do an all-stock deal with Wendy's shares at nice highs, Bojangles, kind of low. It could be an interesting deal, I think. Would a little bit of you just be sad? 
that Bojangles is no longer a standalone public company. Well, but it, it would all be it, it would it would be in, in the name of improvement, right? I mean, hopefully this gives them a chance to upgrade that brand a little bit, spread the spread the love, and, and grow that concept. I mean, it's 650 or so stores right now. Man, let's get that thing to a thousand and show the world what they're made of. Maddie, what about you? Well, this is a this is a message to Microsoft and or Facebook. Uh, there's a company out there that you may have heard of that's taking over workforce collaboration. It's called Slack, and it's got a ridiculous private market valuation of $7 billion as of last week. My message to Microsoft or Facebook, pay double that. It's a drop in the bucket for you guys. I mean, for Microsoft, if you think about it, Slack is essentially making email and therefore Outlook obsolete. And if you're Facebook, you've been trying to get into this workforce social network for years. And I think Slack is the obvious choice uh, for them as well. So, pay up. These are massive companies. Slack is still dropping the bucket, but it's such an influential, important company. I like that your idea reminds me of the fact that for as successful as Microsoft and Facebook, and let's just go ahead and throw Apple in there as well, even though they have really deep pockets, they don't have magic wands. <laughs> you know, to your point about um, Facebook, they've tried to make it work on the office uh, side of things, and it really hasn't. No. So, and we've seen that play out with Microsoft and others. That's right. I think it's a slam dunk deal. All right. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, let's talk stocks, and we'll go negative first. Maybe not so negative, Jason, but we talk about leash. How much leash do you give a given CEO, a given business, a given stock? What's a stock that you have that's on a short leash these days? Yeah, One that we need to keep, I think, a close eye on is Chipotle Mexican Grill, actually. I mean, I can't help but wonder why the stock has been somewhat resilient uh, even after this Ohio incident where there was clearly a problem there in the supply chain. People got sick from the food they got at Chipotle. Uh, Brian Nickel, new CEO, has plenty of opportunity, I think, to take the business in a few different directions, particularly on the marketing side. They've really not invested a ton of money in that marketing spend to this point. But, but the thing is, with Chipotle, it's just not special anymore. I mean, back in 2005, it was special. It was unique. It was something that was a little bit different than anything else that was out there. And today, it's a concept that is being mimicked everywhere. And I think that's part of the problem is, no matter where you go in the country, there are local concepts that are competing more and more with Chipotle every day. And I think that's going to be a really difficult hurdle for them to clear. So, in order for them to do that, to drive that traffic, it's going to come at a cost of margins. They're offering up these deals, figuring out new levers they can pull to get traffic to the stores. But I don't know that really makes for such an such an attractive investing concept now because that really the thesis is all based now on them growing that store footprint as big as they can get it, and I'm just not convinced that they have a lot of room left to run. So, I, you know, I recently trimmed my position in Chipotle and invested uh, some of that money into a uh, virtual healthcare provider that will remain nameless right now. Matt might come in here and actually turn my microphone off if I say <laughs> it, but uh, I, I really do think we need to keep a close eye on Chipotle here in the coming year. Matty, what about you? Uh, for me, it's Zillow. I, I own shares. I'm not looking to sell anytime soon, but I guess I'm struggling to understand what this company wants to be when it grows up. Uh, it's it, Is it a home buying portal? Is it a rental marketplace? Is it a mortgage lender? Is it a home flipper? Well, it is today, uh, and I and it, this is a company that just, it commands a huge audience in the real estate space. But I just don't think they figured out the right way or the best way to monetize their huge user base. And and flipping homes doesn't seem like a great business to me. So I'm keeping a close eye on Zillow. All right, let's go in the other direction. What's a stock that you're even more bullish on now? 
than you were a year ago. Well, it's no secret I'm a big fan of Square. It seems like everywhere I go, I see that hardware, which means that they are using also the software. I like Square Capital helping provide small businesses the liquidity they need, strong leadership. And I think really most of all, you've got a blueprint out there in the form of PayPal that shows how big and how profitable this country or this company can potentially be. Uh, so just just a tremendous market opportunity. They seem to be doing a lot of the right things and I'm just more excited than ever about this one. The thing I notice about Square is how many larger businesses I see it in. You know, you go back five years, it was in you know farmers markets, really small businesses. Now they're in like franchises. Gross payment volume is just growing by leaps and bounds. It was up thirty percent last quarter from a year ago. Matty, what's a stock you're more bullish on today than you were a year ago? It's got to be Mercado Libre, and it's up fifty percent over the last twelve months. But if you look at what they've dealt with this year. Inflation, uh, struggling economies, currency depreciation, a nationwide trucking strike in Brazil, which is their biggest market, uh, the encroaching footprint of Amazon. Uh, the list goes on, and yet I think their position in Latin America's e commerce market just continues to strengthen. If you look at the normalized revenue growth, they're putting up 40%. It owns kind of the square or PayPal of Latin America and Mercado Pago. It's adding millions of new buyers and sellers. I just think even though the stock's up 50%, and it's actually up 200% in the last three years, it's the one stock I see in my portfolio that I think could still be a 10-bagger in a reasonable period of time. Do you see Mercado Libre moving into other parts of the world in a significant way, or is it, it sort of localized where it is? I just think it has so much room in, in, its, in its region, and that includes newer countries like Chile and Colombia that it's actually just gotten into. So, I, I think there's so much room to expand. I don't see them ever growing outside of that region, really, and they don't really have to. I can't believe we got through this segment and Jason didn't say the word Teladoc. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it. You said it. <laughs> Jason Moser, Matt Argentinger. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks, Chris. Coming up, Malcolm Gladwell talks David and Goliath. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Time to revisit Motley Fool CEO Tom Gardner's conversation with best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell about his book, David and Goliath. Malcolm, what would be great is just to have you start by, first of all, thank you so much for coming and spending time with us. Um, just outline the overall premise of the book. Well, I was interested in, uh, in the book in describing um, in asymmetrical conflicts, or more generally in this notion of uh, uh, are, are our, is our understanding of what an advantage is accurate? And that's the theme that runs throughout the whole book. So, if our understanding of, of what an advantage is is so accurate, why does the weaker party in a war win as often as it does? Because the weird thing about, if you look at histories of warfare, is that the, um, the quote-unquote underdog, the much smaller party in any kind of conflict, Wins an astonishing number of times, which suggests that our that you know maybe we're fixating on the wrong variables in explaining conflict, and then I I run with that idea and talk about schools and education and dyslexia and all kinds of entrepreneurialism and all kinds of things along those same lines, wondering whether our kind of intuitive accounting of these things is accurate. What I'd like to do is just spot up some of the characters, some of the narrative of the mm -hmm. of the book, so you can just tell maybe a couple mm -hmm. short little tidbit about each one. So why don't we start with Vivek? And since I'm going to mispronounce names, why don't I have you pronounce the full v name? Vivek Ranadiv. <laughs> Vivek. Who is the guy who founded uh, Tipco, um, software company in uh, in Silicon Valley. Uh, <laughs> he's sort of the one who got me rolling on this because I ran into him at a conference once, and I really had no idea 
who he was. This is a problem of, that I have that I can't, I have very, very poor facial recognition. In fact, parenthetically, I once was at a dinner at some conference, sat next to a guy who, for the whole dinner, and I thought he was a graduate student, and I made him discuss Michigan State basketball with me the entire time, and then discovered at the end of the uh, conversation that it was Larry Page. <laughs> and it never, you know, someone was like, do you realize you talked to Larry Page? I was like, that was Larry Page? I thought he was a graduate student. Um, so I'm bad at this. Anyway, I run into this guy, Vivek, and um, I start talking to him, not realizing that he's the head of TIPCO, uh, about his daughter's basketball team. And he had coached, just finished coaching his daughter's, 12-year-old daughter's basketball team. And Vivek, being from Mumbai, doesn't know the slightest thing about basketball. And so he went to uh, watch basketball to educate himself on this and uh, concluded that the way Americans played basketball was utterly insane. Um, he didn't understand why you retreated after you scored. Why do you run back to your own end and wait for the other team to come up, to bring the ball up? I mean, sometimes people play the full court press, but his whole point was, why wouldn't you press all the time? You're the mo particularly if you're the weaker party, if you're a weaker party, why would you allow the other team, which is better at shooting and passing and scoring than you, to shoot, pass, and score more quickly than they would otherwise? Why wouldn't you try and stop them from doing the thing that makes them, that makes them good, right? And particularly when you're talking about 12-year-old girls, um, who's, you know, the, he, he realized if you play the full court press with 12-year-old girls, um, they won't even get the ball inbounds. Um, so he, his team, and furthermore, he realized that his team that his daughter was playing on was a team of girls from Silicon Valley. They were the daughters of people like him. In other words, these were not girls who went home every night and shot baskets. They were girls who went home at night and like dreamt about becoming marine biologists. They were, they had no talent whatsoever, basically. So. <laughs> He gets these girls together and he says, look, I don't know anything about basketball. You have no talent whatsoever. It's pointless for us to shoot, dribble, do anything. What we're going to do is get an insane shape and I'm going to teach you how to play the most aggressive form of the full court press. And so they win, start winning games by scores like 6 nothing, And they go all the way to the national championship. Now, the fascinating thing about that story is that uh, A, he, it's the rational strategy if your team sucks, right? In fact, any team that is a decided underdog in any basketball contest ought to play the full court press, even though there is a chance if the other team can break the press, you're gonna get blown out. But his point is, so what? You're gonna lose anyway, right? Your only chance of actually winning is to do something radical. So interesting thing number one is, why then do so few underdog teams play the full court press? Why is there an unwillingness to follow a strategy that is in your best interest? And the answer is because it's hard and because it gets, people don't like it. Um, and Vivek, people didn't like Vivek when he was coaching this team. Coming up, Malcolm Gladwell shares some surprising thoughts on choosing a college. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. All right, before we get back to Malcolm Gladwell, quick thanks to Molecule. Molecule is the world's first molecular air purifier that reduces symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. Molecule has introduced a breakthrough science that is finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level. 
Molecule makes a real difference for asthma and allergy sufferers, helping them better cope with their conditions and significantly reducing their symptoms. One customer has reportedly said that after using Molecule in her home, that she was, quote, able to breathe through her nose for the first time in 15 years. Now, I don't know about her, but here's what I do know. We got a Molecule air purifier here at Full Global Headquarters. And I don't know if you've ever been in the Washington, D.C. area when it's pollen season, but it can be brutal. And it made things so much better. So much so that I actually stole the air purifier from our office and brought it to my home and put it in my bedroom. And I could breathe so much easier. It was fantastic. Don't worry, though. I did actually return it to the office. Molecule is easy to use. It has a clean and sleek design from the materials used on the device, like its sleek, solid aluminum shell, to a filter subscription service where filters regularly arrive on your doorstep when you need them. For $75 off your first order, visit Molecule.com and use the promo code FOOL. That's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com and use the promo code FOOL. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Let's rejoin Motley Fool CEO Tom Gardner's conversation with best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell. Let's hear about Caroline Sachs. Caroline Sachs was this uh, pseudonym of, uh, I got really interested in this literature on um, what's called relative deprivation. And so the question is, if you're choosing a college, do you want to go to the best college you can get into? Everyone says you should. But there's reams and reams and reams of educational data to suggest, actually, that's not a good strategy at all. Um, with some exceptions, you shouldn't go to the best school you can get into. You should go to the school where your chances of, uh, of finishing in the top third of your class are greatest. The benefits, psychological benefits, of, or pardon me, the psychological costs of being at the bottom of any class, particularly if you're in a competitive field like uh, science, math, or engineering, are so overwhelming that it's whatever that it's it's too risky. If you really want to get a science degree, you should go somewhere where you can you can feel smart. So Carolyn Sachs is a girl who was really good at science, got into Brown, went because everyone said that's the best school you should get into. Got to Brown, dropped out of science because she f- looked around at the other brilliant kids in her class and thought she couldn't do it, and realized belatedly that she was just in this absurdly elite environment. By any real-world measure, she was good at science. And had she gone to her safety, University of Maryland, she would today have the most valuable commodity in the marketplace, a science degree. Um, so that's a case where, our, again, our, fast, our obsession with a certain kind of advantage, in this case, prestige, completely distorts our rationality. David Boies, the well-known lawyer, and his, and his story to his journey to the law. He's dyslexic. Uh, he reads at most one book a year, and he is America's greatest trial lawyer. Um, when I heard that, I was like, whoa. So I went and talked to him. I was like, I don't know, how, how did you, how do you even get through law school? But if you can't read, he, I mean, he can read, but really, really slowly. And this fitted into this larger theory of, uh, if dyslexia is such a terrible problem, then why are such an extraordinarily high percentage of successful entrepreneurs dyslexic? And the answer is that some portion of dyslexics compensate for their disability in ways that leave them better off. So Boyce said, I got through school by doing two things. I developed my memory I, to the point where if you say something, 
I can, I'll always remember it. Secondly, I learned how to listen. So in law school, he would sit, no paper, no pen. He would sit in the front row, focus on the professor, commit everything the professor, listen to everything the professor said and commit everything the professor said to memory. He gets into a courtroom, all of a sudden, he's a dynamo. You know, in day four of the cross-examination, he can say to you, wait a minute, on day one, you said X, Y, and Z. Now you're contradicting yourself. He's that guy, right? And that's not something he's born with. It's something he developed as a result of being denied the ability to read fluently. Um, and that's, you can make the same argument for entrepreneurs, that deprived of the ability to succeed conventionally in school, you are forced to delegate, right? Every, I, it must have been of you 10 very successful um, dyslexic entrepreneurs. Every single one of them. What do they do in first grade? Identify the smartest kid in the class and make friends with them. <laughs> of course. How else are you going to get through school? They also, by the way, all cheated, which I didn't go through in my book. <laughs> but, but I was actually fascinated by this. Cheating, but it's not cheating. Cheating, most of the time, is where I don't want to do the work, so I take a shortcut. I don't really care about school. I have a contempt for it, whatever. These guys care passionately about school, but they can't do it constitutionally. And they care so much that they say, you know what, I have to stay in school. I am going to come up with strategies that allow me, someone who is you know, uh, constitutionally capable of reading easily, to continue to flourish. And so they cheat. And they, I had, I, at one point I had a whole chapter on the cheating techniques of successful dyslexic entrepreneurs, <laughs> but I left it out. <laughs> Let's hear about Wyatt Walker. Mm. Wyatt Walker, my favorite character in the book. So the question is, White Walker is Martin Luther King's shadowy, less known deputy. He's the fixer. He's brilliant. So King is like the saint, running the show. Walker's behind the scenes. And the question in the chapter, I wrote a chapter on Birmingham. What happens when King goes to Birmingham to take on Bull Connor? the climactic event of the civil rights movement in 1963. And the question is, if you have been oppressed for 200 years, what do you learn through that process? What, do you, what, what are the lessons that you, if you're smart and adaptive and resilient, what do you take home from being kicked around for 200 years? And the answer is, you get really, 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 really clever. And you learn how to play tricks. King in Birmingham has nothing. He's got no money. He's at the lowest ebb of his, of the, he's just gotten schooled in Albany, Georgia. Uh, he's being denounced by everyone, including the black press. He starts to hold marches in Birmingham at the beginning and 12 people show up. Bull Connor is looking at him and laughing. He doesn't even bother to send his cops out after King because King's so pathetic. And Walker proceeds to play a series of tricks on Bull Connor that have the effect of defeating him. And I won't go through all of them, but my favorite is the, actually, the, the best one is the one I, I'm not gonna ruin the chapter for you, but I'll tell you the first one. So they have 12 people marching against every day in Birmingham, which is ridiculous, it's nothing. One day they're arguing in the church before they go out on the, uh, on the march, and they get delayed. And what happened is that after work, all of the African-Americans who worked in downtown Birmingham would come to 16th Street Baptist Church and just hang out to see what was going on. So they're delayed until after work has got out. So they send their march out with 12 people, 
And the next day, Walker reads in the press that a thousand people marched in Birmingham, Alabama. And he was like, a thousand? We only had 12. And he realizes, oh, wait a minute. To the reporters, they can't tell a difference. A black person's a black person. They can't tell the difference between someone who's just an, a bystander and a marcher. So he's like, oh, duh, we're always going to march after, after work now. And so in the press, from then on, it's like 1,200 people marched yesterday in Birmingham. He's like, we had a dozen, right? And everyone is fooled. Even Bull Connor is like, whoa, all these. And a lot of the, this, this hilarious kind of, the story builds from there, but a lot of what people assumed were protesters in Birmingham were always bystanders. Some of the famous photos of uh, the, of the, uh, hope, uh, the, um, the firemen turning the water hoses on protesters. We're not protesters. Uh, Wyatt Walker figured this out. They were bystanders who were really hot. It's Birmingham. Who went to the police, to the firemen, and said, turn on your hoses. We're really hot. So then Wyatt Walker had all the photographers line up, take these photos, and like, and then he said, oh, look what they're doing. Right? <laughs> This man totally outsmarts Bull Connor. I mean, it's just a textbook case of how just because you've got nothing doesn't mean, it's the same lesson of, as Vivek, just because you've got nothing doesn't mean you, can ro you have to roll over and die. There's all kinds of means available to you. Use what you got. You got to use what you got. Yeah. Um, so we're outside the status quo, mm -hmm. and we turn for expert advice. And I, I, I want just a little riff on that in the form of Roger Craig. San Francisco 49ers oh, yeah. running back and his sister. So in other words, Vivek yeah. is outside the status quo, and, and, but he, he probably couldn't have pulled that all off by himself without yeah. turning to one of his employees. Yeah, so go, it turns out, yeah, going back to the story of Vivek and his girls basketball team, it turns out that Roger Craig works for Vivek. And Roger Craig's daughter uh, was a, an all-American basketball player at Duke. So he did, you know, he was not completely, he recognized the fact that, you know, he only really knew cricket and basketball was a little bit of a foreign thing. So he knew, he, he knew, but he also brought in, Craig's very interesting actually, as an advisor, because um, the whole theme of Vivek's basketball experiment was to substitute effort for skill. And his argument, I think it's a very accurate argument, and then in many domains, uh, effort properly expressed is an adequate substitute for skill, more than an adequate substitute for skill. And that's what, if you know, if you know about Roger Craig's career and about him, that's his whole MO. He's an effort guy, much more, he's also a very skilled guy, but the thing that set him apart was an extraordinary work ethic. Roger Craig has run seven marathons since retiring as an NFL running back, most NFL running backs can't walk after they retire, let alone run seven. I mean, so he knew what he was doing, in other words. He was bringing people who reinforced this really sort of central notion, which is that um, if you're willing to really work, that can make up for a lot of deficiencies. Um, so third factor, um, you don't overplay your greatest strength. Um, I, I've, I've phrased it that way from your discussion of the inverted U-curve, and maybe explain yeah. that concept and see yeah. if that's a, should, should a David, even though he has a strength, not think about overdoing it, or is it he's still on the, this side of the U-curve and should be yeah. anchoring hard on his strength as far as he can take it? Yeah, the inverted U is um, a chapter where I 
talk about how I think one of the kind of mental models we use to describe relationships between resources and outputs is really leads us astray. So we have this notion that if a little bit of resources, money, makes the problem better, then a lot of money will make the problem best of all, go away the most. And the answer is no, that doesn't, in most of the things that we, of situations where we look at relationships between uh, what you put in and what you get out, the curve does not look like that. The curve looks like that, or rather the curve looks like a U. That in the beginning things get better, and then they flatten out, and then they get worse. So I use the example of, of class size. It is absolutely the case that if classes are very large and you make them smaller, kids will do better. But then there's a long stretch between probably you know, the high 20s and the low 20s where you could make a class smaller and you will see no effect on kids' um, performance. And if you go too far below 20, kids are worse off. There's really interesting and compelling evidence of this, that it is not a good thing for a child to be in a class with 14 children, 14 other students. One, you cannot get a discussion going with 14, not enough voices in the room. Two, one bad apple can totally ruin a small class because there's, there's nowhere for that person to hide, right? You can't, and thirdly, that children who are struggling, what they need most of all is not more attention from the teacher. What they need most of all is another person, a peer, who is learning at the same pace as they are so they don't feel marginal and isolated. You need to have someone who's asking the same questions, struggling with the same problems. If a class gets too, too small, the struggling kids are just wiped out. Um, and that's something, you know, a lesson that is so routinely violated. You know, I made fun of, of private, expensive private schools in my book because, I'm sorry, they deserve it. They take $50,000 of your money and they boast to you that your kid is in a class with 12 other students. Whoever said that's a good thing, right? All they're doing is justifying the fact that they spent, take, took 50 grand and in And they money. have 20 Steinway pianos. These that was the Hotchkiss school, Hotchkiss where, where you, I thought, brilliantly pointed out that, that, school, that a school like that is often serving its primary customer, which is the parent, yeah, not actually not, the outcome not, for the student. It it's to super. impress the parent that we yeah. have the, the very best yeah. of every piece of equipment and, and times by the way, 10. Where is it written? I even find the whole notion that we, that the, that the point of a classroom is to maximize the uh, attention that a student gets from a teacher is insane. There, a, 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 a student has to go through extended periods where they are forced to solve the problem in front of them by themselves. That's called life, right? The teacher should be there for when you are truly stuck and also should be there to get you to the point where you can solve it on your own. It is not a good thing to have a teacher hovering over your shoulder at all times. That's debilitating. Um, and so it goes to this idea that too much, we so often make the mistake where we push our, our use of resources well past the point where they are um, useful. Coming up, Malcolm Gladwell talks about the attributes of a great leader. Stay right here. This is Motley Full Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Let's get back to Motley Fool CEO Tom Gardner's conversation with best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell. I want to talk about the leaders that set up cultures and throw three adjectives at you from the book. Um, maybe I'm slightly tweaking the wording, but open-minded, mm -hmm. uh, persistent, mm -hmm. 
and disagreeable. Yeah. Why are those three important to find in a great leader? Well, openness, so these are, this is this, uh, some wonderful work's been done on sort of innovators recently, and they have stressed the kind of, they've looked at what is the kind of pro prototypical profile of, a, of an entrepreneur innovator leader. And the, ar the argument is they are, the most obvious one is that they are open, meaning they are creative. Um, and that's, goes without saying. You have to be able to be someone who considers all. The second thing is that you must be conscientious in the psychological sense of that word. So of their big five, there are five basic character traits. Conscientiousness is one of them. Are you someone who can follow through on your ideas? Now, right away, we have an interesting situation here because <clears throat> there are lots of people who are open and there are lots of people who are conscientious. Those that have both those traits are rare, right? Uh, you know, I can find in any coffee shop in Brooklyn lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of creative people who can't finish their screenplay, right? I can also find in any law firm in America tons and tons of conscientious people who, will, who we don't want to think outside the box, right? We want them inside the box, right? Um, they're not creative. So there's these, but that overlap is rare. And then add to the, the third and most important one, which is disagreeable, which is you cannot be someone um, who requires the approval of others um, in, order to, in order to do what you intend to do. Um, and that's crucial because, and that's the hardest of the three, because we're hardwired as human beings uh, to want the approval of our peers. Um, I always remember when I was writing my book, Blink, I hung out with that guy who studied marriages, and he was talking about the one emotion that a marriage cannot survive in the face of is contempt, because contempt is the emotion of exclusion. That when you're, when you're, if your spouse argues with you, they are including you. They're saying, I care about you enough to want to work this out. When they are contemptuous towards you, they're saying, I'm done with you. And as human beings, we need that kind of approval so much that that can end a marriage. Well, the really great entrepreneurs at some key moment, or innovators or leaders, at some key moment as they are doing, putting forth their vision, need to be disagreeable. They need to not need that kind of approval. Because the one thing we know is that, you know, at, there's always a moment in the birth of any great idea when the consensus is it's crazy. Find me a transformative idea that did, was, was not denounced and criticized at some key moment during its, its gestation. We have to close to let you get on your way, but could you just close by sharing a little bit about how you think about, how we should think about our disadvantages in life? Anyone in the room that sees, I have this weakness, I have this flaw, yeah. I have this thing that's held me back, or this shortcoming, um, or I see it in a ch my child, I see them struggling with this, how should we think about disadvantages? Well, as, uh, you know, it's, it is a cliche, but they, as learning opportunities, there are, you know, you can learn by capitalizing on your strengths or you can learn by compensating for your weaknesses. The compensation path is far more difficult. It's far more rare, but it's way more powerful. The things you learn um, as you are working around or through adversity are lessons that are far more deeply felt than the things you learn because of your strengths. And so, you know, the, 
I chose dyslexia in my book for a reason, because there are just so many examples of people who uh, refuse to deal. That is just about the most serious impediment you can throw in the path of a child. And the idea that there are lots and lots and lots and lots of really, really successful people who, when faced with that impediment at the age of six and seven, just were undaunted by it and just went about their just found another way to kind of go about the business of getting through school and then ultimately through life. That to me is such a beautiful example of how we radically underestimate our ability as human beings to deal with, to, to, to deal with, 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 with adversity. I mean, I think we're much better at it than we think. Malcolm Gladwell's latest book is David and Goliath. It is available everywhere. You can also check out his podcast, Revisionist History. You can find it, well, wherever you find your podcasts. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Rick Engdahl. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.